Five times five is 25, but two times two is not 22. Yet somewhere in this sentence are all of the ingredients that you need to tell you it is May 25th of the current year. Like most things in life, there are no easy solutions to intractable problems, and resources are often hard to find or arrange in the appropriate way. But we must try to solve them anyway. This is Charlottesville Community Engagement, and I'm your host, Sean Tubbs. On today's program, Governor Yunkin orders flags at half-mast in memory of the 19 children and two adults who were murdered by a young adult with access to military-grade weaponry. A second daily train between Roanoke and D.C. could launch this July. And the Albemarle Planning Commission reviews a report about how well the county's development areas are filling in. In today's first Patreon-fueled shout-out, have you been thinking of converting your fossil fuel appliances and furnaces into something that will help the community reduce its greenhouse gas emissions? Your local energy nonprofit, LEAP, has launched a new program to guide you through the steps towards electrifying your home. Thermalize Virginia will help you understand electrification and connect you with vetted contractors to get the work done and help you find any rebates or discounts. Visit thermalizeva.org to learn more and to sign up. Governor Glenn Youngkin has ordered that flags at public buildings in Virginia be flown at half-staff from now until May 28th in respect and memory of the victims of the Robb Elementary School shooting in Uvalde, Texas. As of this reporting, 19 elementary school students and two teachers stopped living after the fast-moving bullets tore through their unprotected bodies, rendering it impossible for them to sustain life. The lone gunman carried a handgun and an AR-15-style assault rifle. Earlier in the day, the assailant shot and wounded his grandmother. Earlier this year, attempts were made in the General Assembly to repeal legislation that passed in 2020 to place limits on firearms. Those successful efforts in 2020 included a bill that allowed localities to prohibit the carrying of firearms on public-owned land in buildings. Delegate Tim Anderson, a Republican from the 83rd District, introduced a bill this year to repeal that effort, but it did not make it out of the House Committee on Public Safety. Anderson also sought to lower the penalty for a second violation of carrying a concealed weapon without a permit from a Class 6 felony to a Class 2 misdemeanor. That passed the House of Delegates on a 53-46 to vote, but did not make it out of the Senate Public Safety Committee. Another bill that did pass the House of Delegates this year would have shortened the time the Department of State Police would be required to complete a background check on a firearms transfer from five to three days. Here's a section of the summary from HB 204. If a dealer who has otherwise fulfilled all requirements is told by the state police that a response will not be available by the end of the dealer's third business day, the dealer may complete the sale or transfer without being deemed in violation. That bill from Delegate Otto Waxman, a Republican from the 75th District, passed the House on a 51 to 48 vote. The Senate Judiciary Committee passed that bill by indefinitely. 
Another bill that passed in 2020 made it possible for an attorney or officer of the court to file an emergency order that, if granted, would prohibit people who pose substantial risk from possessing, purchasing, or transporting a firearm. A bill from Delegate Marie March, a Republican from the 7th District, to eliminate this possibility passed the House of Delegates on a 52-47 to vote, but the Senate Judiciary Committee passed the bill by. There is one firearms-related bill pending in the special session of the General Assembly. HB 1306, introduced by Delegate Marcus Simon, a Democrat from the 53rd District, would make it unlawful to remove or alter a serial number on a firearm. That passed the House of Delegates on a 94-3 vote with one abstention. The Senate passed the bill on a 31-9 vote. Three senators and three delegates are the conferees working to reconcile the two versions of the bill, and the special session resumes on June 1st. The National Rifle Association is active in campaign finance in the Commonwealth, according to the Virginia Public Access Project. In 2021, the NRA contributed $93,250 to candidates. All of them are Republicans. Since 1997, the NRA has contributed $1.16 million to Republican candidates and groups and $91,222 to Democratic groups and candidates. Another $4,750 went to Delegate Watkins Abbott, who served from 1986 until his retirement before the 2012 General Assembly. Abbott was a Democrat until becoming an independent in 2001. For more on the response to this latest mass shooting in an American school from Virginia politicians, read Brandon Jarvis's Virginia Political Newsletter. It has been nearly a dozen years since Amtrak began running daily service through Charlottesville, and we are perhaps months away from when a long-awaited second train will begin service. This week, the Virginia Passenger Rail Authority's Board of Directors met and got an update from Executive Director D.J. Statler, who said a deal with Norfolk Southern still has to be closed. He expects that to happen next month or in early July. Only when that close takes place, we can start the new service. There are three trains that are waiting for that close. One is the new Roanoke train, which will be the second Roanoke round trip. One is the Newport News train that was paused due to COVID slash Amtrak staffing issues. And then the third one is the new Norfolk train. Construction of a new bridge to cross the Potomac River will not be needed before it begins. But Statler said VPRA is applying for $300 million in federal funding to help cover some of the $2 billion of the Long Bridge expansion. Statler also said ridership is rebounding after the pandemic on all routes. If you look at the April ridership, we're up over 25% from the previous month. Quote unquote, normal times, you would see an increase from March to April of about 8%. So this is a huge increase showing that folks are getting back on the train. Ridership on the Roanoke train in April 2019 was at just under 19,000, but plummeted to 1,116 in April of 2020. That rebounded to 9,385 in April of 2021. This year, ridership was at 19,605 for the month of April. Special hat tip to WDBGA7 in Roanoke for the original reporting that prompted this story.
You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second subscriber-supported public service announcement, Camp Albemarle for 60 years has been a wholesome, rural, rustic, and restful site for youth activities, church groups, civic events, and occasional private programs. Located on 14 acres on the banks of the Mormons River near Free Union, Camp Albemarle continues as a legacy of being a civilian conservation corps project that seeks to promote the importance of rural activities. Camp Albemarle seeks support for a plan to winterize the Hamner Lodge, a structure built in 1941 by the CCC and used by every fourth and fifth grade student in Charlottesville and Albemarle for the study of ecology for over 20 years. If this campaign is successful, Camp Albemarle could operate year-round. Consider your support by visiting campalbemarleva.org slash donate. One more segment today. For the past six months, Albemarle staff have been working behind the scenes on the update of the comprehensive plan, which will be conducted in four phases. Rachel Falkenstein is a planning manager with the county. And the first phase is plan for growth, where we are evaluating the current growth management policy. And we're using the theoretical maximum build out of the county's development areas based on the current land use plan from our 2015 plan um, to determine what the maximum build out could be of those development areas. Falkenstein said the question is whether there's enough land to accommodate the population growth expected over the next 20 years. There is also an effort to look at whether there's enough land to meet the county's goals for economic development. This is the first time the county has contracted out what's known as a build-out analysis to a third party. Kimley Horn was hired, and Jessica Rossi is a planner with that firm. She explained some of the methodology. Our first step was to identify um, parcels that may have development or redevelopment potential. And so the way that we did this is we looked at, um, at a very high level, the value of land and the value of improvement. If the land value was greater than the improvement value, Rossi said that designated it as land with development potential. A second step was to factor in location, environmental constraints, size of the land, and who owned it. Another was to look at the list of projects that are in the development pipeline. We removed properties that were either approved or under review from our model and inputted what we know the yields of those projects, those, the maximum build-out yield of those projects are to, um, to, to one, avoid double counting of those pro- projects, but to use the, the total build-outs that we know have been approved. Then, forecasts were developed that take into account the past 10 years of development activity, combined with real estate performance, as well as three sets of population projections. Rossi said the growth area currently has about 9,377 units that are approved, but not yet built. They also looked at the number of units currently under review, which totals 5,504. And that led to a total buildable units in the pipeline of over 14,800. Rossi said when you look at land that has not yet been through the rezoning process, there are an additional 9,265 potential units. When you put these two numbers together, that total exceeds 24,000 residential units. 
Between 2010 and 2021, the average number of units built each year is 646. The 10-year forecast anticipates between 6,000 and 7,500 new units, and the 20-year forecast is between 11,500 and 13,500. Rossi said not all development areas are the same. What's known as Neighborhood 6 has no units pending for review, whereas the Hollymead community has the potential of about 63,050 new units. That number of 9,265 units that was just mentioned assumes that development comes in at the maximum allowed under the current comprehensive plan designation. Rezonings or special use permits would be required to make that happen, and those approvals are not always guaranteed. Tori Canalopoulos is another county planner. Looking at rezonings approved from 2016 through 2021, the total density approved was approximately 58% of the maximum density recommended per future land use designations. For instance, the Rio Point project approved by supervisors last year could have had a maximum of 624 units under the comp plan, but only 328 were approved. Old Trail in Crozet was approved in 2005 for between 1,600 and 2,200 units, but the final build-out will only be around 1,200 units. Hunter Wood of the United Land Corporation said it is very difficult to get the maximum amount of units available under the comprehensive plan. Costs have gone through the roof. A lot of that cost is two years of rezonings to go through the county uh, to start off at 500 units and you get beaten, come in here and get whipped and beaten. You walk out with 250. Wood said he would love to be able to build those 6,000 units in Hollymead and said his company does have a lot of undeveloped land there. I personally, probably a little biased, think the growth area needs to be expanded. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some property that water and sewer is 100 feet away from me. Huh. Yet I have a road that is a the boundary that y'all don't, nobody wants to cross. Wood referred to Somerset Farms, a 1,900-unit development on Route 20 south of I-64, for which a growth area expansion was voted down by the Planning Commission in October of 2011. Commissioners were asked one simple question. Does our current growth management policy provide opportunities to meet housing and non-residential needs for growth over the next 20 years? Commission Chair Karen Firehawk said unit amounts are often reduced during the rezoning process because of concerns brought forward by other community members. A lot of times it has to do with schools and traffic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really cannot answer this question without knowing what, what kind of traffic demand would that put on our roads? How many schools would be needed to realize X number? Commissioner Julian Biven said one question is whether people who live in Albemarle really want density. Everybody comes out and talks about they don't want to walk their dog next to those people, or they don't want to get run over when they go across that street, or they don't want to do a city. So the whole idea is that the community has got to get better with density. If that doesn't happen, then we have all we need. Biven said he would like to see conversations about creating transition zones that are between the rural and growth areas. He also said certain projects could have been much taller to allow more units. Commissioner Daniel Bailey suggested the county also needs to better understand how the lack of available land could be forcing people to live outside of the county. I, I, I've had I've employed many employees that 
live in Lake Longero and drive in and would love to live in Charlottesville, but it's too expensive. Would live here and would love to live here. And so I don't know how we get to that understanding. Another growth management work session will be held with the planning commission next month. And that's it for this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement for May 25th, 2022. Um, I am here as a reporter because I think that there are things that people should know. And my job is to bring that out and write about it in a way that I think is important that people understand the severity of certain issues. I am not an advocate. I am simply a person who lives in this community and lives in this world. And uh, there are certain stories which I think are so heartbreaking that, uh, uh, and they keep happening over and over again. And it's like a pattern that just keeps repeating. So I don't know what else to say except for I have no answers and I never do, but I am hoping that as Charlottesville community engagement grows and Town Crier production grows to help spread my style of journalism that I will be in a position to ask plenty more questions. There are plenty to be asked, and of course, that's what I do. I'm going to leave it there for today because it's time to get on and get ready to producing the next installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement. In the meantime, stay close to your children if you have them. If you don't have children and you wanted them and don't have them, I'm sorry about that too. I'm not sure what else to say except for There's a lot of compassion for people in the world uh, that I have. And of course, there's a lot of different stories and a lot of them are often painful. And of course, not everything is a happy day and I'm certainly not quite happy today. Uh, And that's kind of how I generally am anyway, but uh, I am glad to be able to bring you this reporting when I can, as often as I can. Thank you very much. Sean Tubbs, Charlottesville Community Engagement. Stay out of the way of bullets if you can.